We are in the midst of a short series looking at a few psalms, and this morning we're going to spend some time with Psalm 25. So now hear a reading from the 25th Psalm. O Lord, I come before you in prayer. My God, I trust in you. Please do not let me be humiliated. Do not let my enemies triumphantly rejoice over me. Certainly none who rely on you will be humiliated. Those who deal in treachery will be thwarted and humiliated. Make me understand your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me into your truth and teach me, for you are the God who delivers me. On you I rely all day long. Remember your compassionate and faithful deeds, O Lord, for you have always acted in this manner. Do not hold against me the sins of my youth or my rebellious acts, because you are faithful to me. Extend to me your favor, O Lord. The Lord is both kind and fair. That is why he teaches sinners the right way to live. May he show the humble what is right. May he teach the humble his way. The Lord always proves faithful and reliable to those who follow the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your reputation, O Lord, forgive my sin, because it is great. The Lord shows his faithful followers the way they should live. They experience his favor. Their descendants inherit the land. The Lord's loyal followers receive his guidance and he reveals his covenantal demands to them. I continually look to the Lord for help, for he will free my feet from the enemy's net. Turn toward me and have mercy on me, for I am alone and oppressed. Deliver me from my distress. Rescue me from my suffering. See my pain and suffering. Forgive all my sins. Watch my enemies, for they outnumber me. They hate me and want to harm me. Protect me and deliver me. Please do not let me be humiliated, for I have taken shelter in you. May integrity and godliness protect me, for I rely on you. O God, rescue Israel from all their distress. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, we come to the Psalms uh, discovering an incredible gift that in these prayers, we find prayer. Lord, that when we don't know the words to pray, when we don't know how to deal with the situations going on in our lives, the Psalms offer us a way through it, Lord, a way to bring it to you. And I ask, Lord, as we consider Psalm 25, that you would empower us as a people, that you would enable us and free us uh, to pray more openly before you. Lord, thank you for this gift. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So like I said, for the first uh, seven or so weeks of this year, we are studying some psalms. And, um, and we're doing this with a particular goal in mind. We are doing it in hopes of obeying the last command of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The very final command of Jesus is, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remember, I'm with you always. Now, what does he mean when he says that? He's not telling us to remember something the way you try to remember your bike lock combo, all right? It's not just keeping an idea in our heads. It is practicing the presence of God, to use an old phrase. It is an action. It's a relationship. And so we've chosen seven psalms that I think help us do that in different circumstances. And every one of the seven psalms that we've chosen uses an image for being in God's presence that was a go-to image for David. It's the image of shelter. In each of the psalms for these seven weeks, David at one point or another says, in you I take shelter. And before we even get into this specific psalm, Psalm 25, I think we can learn something from the idea that David returns to this image again and again. In you, I take shelter. David is engaging with God and experiencing God by using his imagination. He's using an image when he prays. You know, David took shelter from weather, from wild animals, and most often from his enemies in caves throughout the wilderness around Israel. I mean, he was often out and about on on a military mission or running from someone who was trying to kill him. And a well-hidden cave was a great protection to David. And so he prays. That image, he, he brings that image to mind when he prays. Um, a long time ago, in the late 70s, a book was written on the spiritual disciplines by Richard Foster. It's called Celebration of Discipline. Um, still one of the most influential books in my life. And when he's writing on the discipline of prayer, Foster encourages people to use our imaginations, bring an image that you can feel to mind. Uh, He suggests uh, praying things like, God, would you wrap that person in your love like a warm quilt? You know, or or would you allow me to feel feel your presence in me the way a cup feels liquid filling it up? You know, those sorts of things awaken more of our senses to God's presence. In prayer, imagination can be a doorway to reality. As I enter the refuge in my mind's eye, my heart is genuinely entrusting itself to God and experiencing his loving protection. So that's what we're doing. We're taking refuge in God. We're taking shelter in him. Now this particular psalm, Psalm 25, is written in a a sort of a classic Hebrew poetry style. It's a formulaic style. It's an acrostic poem. Now, an acrostic poem means, if, if you don't know what that means, it means the first letter of each new line 
follows the Hebrew alphabet. So often if you are reading through the Psalms and you see a Psalm has 22 verses, that's a clue that it might be following the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, Now this particular one, he gets 20 for 22. Um, Two of the lines he just decided not to do the letter, the, the next letter, and that's fine. Nobody can, nobody's telling David what to do on his, on his prayer poems, okay? So um, this, this is a way to pray. And praying this way, praying the alphabet, so to speak, it may, be, it may seem a little disingenuous, right? It, it may seem like, hmm, is that, a, is that an honest prayer or is he just writing a, you know, a, a kid's storybook. Those of you with little kids, your house is about to fill up with ABC books where each page is a different thing that starts with that letter. And I defy you to find one where xylophone is not the X. <laughs> I mean, it, doesn't, it could be a, an animal-themed alphabet, but they still go to xylophone. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's, I, help me, find one. I, the, you know, I gave up. Anyway, so th- this, is, this is conjecture, all right? This isn't based on some, uh, some research, but I, I get the feeling with this alphabetical way of praying, I get the feeling of someone going, I, I need to bring this situation before God, but I'm not sure what to say. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just run through the alphabet. Like, okay, A, all my life is yours. B, but I'm really struggling. C, could you help me in my distress? D, demons are attacking me. Whatever, you know, I, I won't go on. If someone did this to me, if someone came to me and said, Mike, I have something to say to you. I'm not really sure how to say it, so I'm going to say it with the alphabet. I would feel a little impatient about that. Maybe you are more gracious than me, um, but here's the deal. I'm not God. Uh, I, you know, we each have limited time and limited attention. We might ask one another, hey, could you just spend some time on your own and work out what you want to say and then come back to me so I don't have to hear you work out you know, work xylophone into your request. Um, God, on the other hand, has all the time in the world for every single prayer that we bring before him. I think this is a gracious reminder of that. He gives his full, undivided, complete attention to the four-year-old who has a prayer request because her doggy seemed sad and the refugee parent who is begging God to keep his malnourished child alive. He is giving his full attention to both. We worship a God who is everywhere, all at once, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. That means he has all the love. Unless I'm in a super gracious mindset, I don't have time for that, but God, God does. Um, Now, some of you are uh, going through the, the Bible in two years. We're doing this two-year Bible reading plan that we started at the beginning of this month. We're not that far in because it's a two-year plan. You're still welcome to join. Um, there's 
links and all of our e-communications. Um, you can jump in. We're using the e-version for that. But some of you have recently read the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has some interesting things to say about prayer, including don't babble on and on thinking God will hear you because of your many words. You know, so that seems a little um, contradictory to a prayer that is running through the alphabet to get what the prayer needs to say. Um, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is specifically talking about putting on a show to look really holy for people. You know, doing things to seem pious. He is challenging um, a common thing in his day and, a, frankly, a very common thing in the Christian culture of our day of long, holy-sounding prayers that would make other people think that the person praying in public is super spiritual. That's what Jesus is talking about. But look at Jesus's life. Throughout his life, he steals away from his, uh, his disciples and spends hours, sometimes a whole day, praying alone. That's surely many words before the Father. He doesn't think the Father will hear him because of his many words. In private, he's just enjoying the presence of God, maintaining an intimate relationship with him. So in Psalm 25, David prays the Hebrew alphabet. And as the alphabet progresses, the real issues start to surface. At first, it seems like a typical prayer of David. David is always in some type of fight. He's always, in some, he's always got someone who wants to kick him out of the throne, who doesn't think he's the legitimate king. He's got other you know, kingdoms who are attacking him. He's got problems in his household. So in most of the prayers of David, he starts with his enemies. You know, like, please don't let my enemies win this thing. Don't let them humiliate me, save me from my enemies. That's, that's a fairly typical prayer of David, even though it's, a, it's uh, unfamiliar to us probably in our own prayers. You know, his opponents are threatening him. It's wearing him out. He must put his trust in God. But as the psalm progresses, we get to the more vulnerable places. The heart of this psalm seems to be asking for two things, forgiveness and guidance, forgiveness and guidance. Really, he's seeking guidance through his own sin. When he's praying other prayers that are simply about the threat of enemies, it's not this same humble tone. Um, this, this prayer is seeking wisdom. In other prayers, he's like, I'm right, they're wrong, punish them, please. And there's times where we need to join with David and pray that. In this one, as he digs deeper, he acknowledges that he's a sinner and he can't see clearly how to get out of it. He's not sure what to do. This psalm mentions enemies, but the real storm from which David needs shelter is his own sin. And that is very familiar to me. It, 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 it digs deeper into his sin as the prayer progresses. At the beginning, when he first acknowledges his sin, he says, 
do not hold against me the sins of my youth. You know, yeah, I was, I was young and foolish. Please don't hold that against me. But as the prayer progresses, he says, forgive my sin, for it is great. What does it mean to bring our sins before God, to seek shelter in God with our sin as the storm? Here's the big thing I want you to hear, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk through some, some postures that we can have when we bring our sin before God, and there's a few of them are demonstrated in this prayer. But in case you get lost in the postures, here's what I want you to hear. No matter how you feel about the sin that you've become aware of or that somebody's accused you of, I want you to hear, you can bring it before God. He, you, may, you may deny it or whatever, but that's a conversation that he wants to have with you. The awareness of sin is in and of itself an invitation to relationship with him. So I want to look at just four ways that we can bring our sin before God, four ways that we try to seek shelter in him when we're dealing with sin. Those four ways are this, self-justification, regret, humility, and penitence. Okay, here's what I mean by those, self-justification. Sometimes, as we see often in the Psalms, um, the prayer is just arguing our case before God. We are, we are representing ourselves in the holy courts. We are our own lawyer, and we're trying to prove that we are innocent. There may be something going on between you and someone else, and that person has accused you of something, but you think that you are right. You think that your behavior in that situation was justified, but it's causing tension for you. I mean, there's that that's a very anxiety-producing situation for me when somebody tells me I've done something wrong and and I didn't don't think I did in that situation. Usually they're right, but it takes me a while to come around to it. Um, so one way to pray and a way that the Psalms demonstrate prayer is to state our case. Lord, I think I'm innocent in this situation. I have cause for my behavior. And, and I want to say, make your case. Make your case before God. David does that plenty in the Psalms. I mean, he says things like, if I've done what they say, let me be run down and destroyed by my enemies. If I'm really guilty, let me pay the consequences. God is not interested in us pretending to be contrite when we're not. He, that, if you read the things that Jesus says, there is one thing that disturbs God more than anything else in our relationships with him. And that's hypocrisy. Pretending to be something we're not before God. Like we're going to pull the wool over his eyes. Like we're going to somehow trick him to thinking we really are sad about something when we're not. Or we really are happy about something when we're not. 
If you are genuine in going before God and willing to engage with him, he can work with your self-justification. He can. He can. He may not let you stay there, but he can work with it. You may discover that the more aware of his presence you become, the less capable of self-justification you are. Let me know how it goes, honestly. But if you believe that God is just and you are innocent, he is the person you want to be talking to. Pray it. Okay, that's self-justification. Second is regret. Maybe you've moved past self-justification. You know you're wrong. You know you did something wrong. And you know there's a cost to it. But you don't want to pay the cost. You don't want to face the consequences. That, that's regret. That's, that's the feeling of like, look, if there wasn't a cost to this, I'd probably do it again. But I, I don't like the bad thing that's going to happen. You know, sometimes, um, you know, experienced uh, pastors and, and counselors encounter this often when, when people are really, really struggling on the very edge of their marriage. And one spouse says to the other, if you don't stop this behavior, I am leaving. Often what happens in that situation is the other person stops that behavior because they don't want the consequence of, you know, the marriage falling apart. And the behavior will stop for weeks, maybe months, until things settle out again. And then, then it's right back into the old behavior. That's what I mean when I say regret. But again, what I want to encourage you to do, because this is also throughout the Psalms, is, is be honest. Lord, I... I don't want the consequences. This is how we be genuine, authentic before the Lord. If this is the case for you, just let it be a two-way conversation. Lay your request out to God, but sit in it. An honest confession would cast yourself on his mercy and wait for his response. Okay, so self-justification, regret. Now, what does Psalm 25 demonstrate for us? It demonstrates humility. Humility in terms of our sin is simply saying, my sin is great. I, I own it. I own it. What I did was wrong. For Moana fans, it's like, Maui at the very end of the movie. I'm sorry. It's, I just, this is my metaphor for everything. I just love Moana so much. But, you know, he stops, stops making excuses for himself. What I did was wrong, and I'm sorry. The way this psalm encourages us to approach our sin is with humility. This psalm is a celebration of humility. It is honoring humble sinners, faithful followers, loyal followers. David brings them up again and again and celebrates the fact that God is faithful to them. The focus is no longer on the consequences for sin. The consequences are what they are. It's just on the sin itself. My sin is great. Justification has been stripped away. I can't blame anyone else for it. I did this. 
My heart was selfish. My heart was wicked. By the end of this psalm, I get the sense that all of David's eggs are in the God basket. He hasn't, he hasn't diversified his investments. Right? He, he's not like, well, if it doesn't work out here, things can happen over there. And frankly, guys, I think sometimes we do diversify our well-being investments. If this God thing doesn't work out, I've got some other things to fall back on. And that is not the life that God calls us to live. We put all of our hope for our well-being in him. God, if you don't protect me from the humiliation that I have brought on myself, I'm doomed. You're all I have. Forgive me and guide me in spite of and through my sin. This humility, it's like the mountaintop of human prayer. It's where genuine growth happens. When our prayers cease to be fix them and become fix me, real change is possible. That's true in any relationship, you guys. When you're struggling in a relationship, when, when, when your focus ceases to be, you need to get your stuff together and becomes, oh, I've got some stuff to work on in this. That's when we can grow. I'm a sinner. Please fix me. That's spiritual progress. Why can David do this? David can do this. He can pray with this humility because of his theology. That is, because of the specific things he remembers about God. And prayer is a great time to recite your theology. You know, sometimes us preachers can do some long-winded prayers, and we probably fit in the category that I mentioned Jesus was talking about earlier. And, and, you know, sometimes it happens for me where when I'm praying at the end of a sermon, I remember the third point that I wanted to make, so I pray it. <laughs> so listen, you know, could be some, could be some good stuff. But um, I think when we're in, just in private before the Lord, in relationship with him, Praying our theology out loud is a great practice. It's a great practice. You may discover that your theology is a little wonky, but David demonstrates some beautiful theology here. There's there's two ways that he takes shelter in his beliefs about God in, in the humility of his prayer. So theological shelter number one is God's mercy. He is rejoicing. He's he's literally worshiping in this prayer that God is glorified by giving mercy. That that's, that's how God shows off throughout Scripture. The humble are those who receive God's mercy. God does what he does all throughout the biblical history. He does what he does even things that appear at first to be harsh judgment, in order to show overwhelming, astounding, praise-inducing mercy. And we take shelter in this. The God revealed in Scripture is compassionate and loving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, just like we prayed earlier. He's like a tender parent who wants the best for his children, We can be confident that God will respond to our humility, not with vengeance, but with mercy, with with extra affection. 
I mean, you parents, you know, if your kids come to you humbly about anything, you respond with mercy and care toward them. God is drawn to hum- humility like water to the low places. His second theological shelter is God's faithfulness. Throughout this psalm, especially verses 10 and 11, but all throughout, he recites the fact that God is faithful to his covenant people. He's faithful to his covenant people. There's this wild history that David already knows. David's scriptures are the Pentateuch. They're the first five books of our Bibles, all right? That's that's what David has for his scripture, but he already has all of these examples of God making promises to his people and then, then going above and beyond to keep the promises, even when he has to uphold the person's side of it. And so throughout this psalm, God says, you are, or David says, you are faithful to your loyal followers. That, that is his theology that he's working with. From Abraham to Moses and even into David's day, again and again, God upholds his his end of the promise and ours. David isn't taking this for granted. He's not using it to manipulate God. And that's a temptation. Like, well, I I blew it, but you have to fix it for me. All right, That's, that's not the posture that David has here. It is a worshipful, celebratory acknowledgement. Wow, God, you, uh, you've been merciful to your people. You've been faithful to uphold your covenant throughout. Who is a God like this who suffers to keep his people in relationship with him? O- only the God of the, of the Bible. This is, this is the only place we meet a God like this who suffers to keep his people with him. All right, so we've covered three postures to bring our sin before God, self-justification, regret, and humility. On the other side of humility, it's really another part of humility, is where the real movement is happening, and that's penitence, penitence. Though he honestly owns his sin, David's confession in Psalm 25 does not remain focused on his sin. He starts, he acknowledges it and owns it. But after that, the focus shifts from his sin to God himself. That's what I mean by penitence. David is not concerned with his own well-being. He's concerned with God's honor and with the honor of God's people. He prays as one who loves God, wants God to be glorified in his life, and recognizes that his sin has failed to do so. Penitence is not about the consequence or even the sin. It's about the relationship. It's about the relationship. David is praying that God would restore his relationship with him. He doesn't merely pray, forgive me for my sin. He prays, please guide me. Please show me the way to go. Help me through this. Give me wisdom. And and a promise that the Bible makes from beginning to end is if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it. I mean, this this is a promise of scripture. When we come before him and say, I need 
wisdom. I mean, whether it's King Solomon who asks for wisdom in a famous scene, or the readers of the letter that James wrote in the New Testament, the scattered and persecuted believers in the first century, any of them, the promise is if you ask for wisdom, God will give it. You know where I need the most wisdom in my life? The greatest challenge in my life is dealing with my own mess. That's where I need wisdom, in my own sin. Make me understand your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me into your truth and teach me. That's true penitence. Maybe you've picked up on my tone throughout this that uh, self-justification and regret, you know, are okay places to start, but I don't think God will leave you there. All right, I think we progress through those things. You can admit that you feel justified, that you regret the consequences, But if you want to learn to pray with humility and penitence, just pray this psalm. The honest prayer could be, Lord, I don't really feel this, but I'm going to try it out. I'm going to try it out. That's the gift of the psalms. There's this cultural thing that's happened, I don't know, in the last few decades, maybe longer, where we think a prayer is more genuine if we make it up ourselves. And yet the people of God throughout our history have prayed these prayers together and let them unlock our hearts. Remember, learning about Psalms, like we're learning about Psalm 25, learning about them is fine, but the Psalms are at their best when we use them. When we use them, put it in action. When we pray these, this prayer is a beautiful way to ask God for wisdom, especially when you think you don't deserve it. As David works through the alphabet, he finds his relationship with God is deep and secure, even though he's a sinner. Okay, so that's the heart of this psalm, shelter from our sin. But as the alphabet ends, David does something that it kind of makes sense to me. He's worked out the relationship with God, and then he's like, oh yeah, I also have this list of things that I need you to take care of. And the end of the psalm is a, is a rapid-fire list of things like, God, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Okay, amen. That's how the psalm ends. The, that's the last several verses. The relationship of trust is established. And then, hey, kids, welcome back. It's great to have you back. All right, and then at the end of the psalm, we discover that it is, it's okay to ask God to act in the situations that you have. He doesn't finish with, all these hard things are happening, but I just submit to whatever your will is. He's asking God to do specific things in specific situations. Please intervene. Okay? Please intervene. Several years ago, um, during a membership class that some of you were in, uh, we, we did, as kind of a get-to-know-you discussion, we, uh, we had this question. It was, what's, what's one challenge that you'll be facing this time tomorrow? All right, so we're asking it around like 1 p.m. on a Sunday. And so what were you going to be facing around 1 p.m. the next day? And, and that's really helpful, especially for introverted people. This is kind of like me. If, if someone just asks me, how are you doing? What's new? I'm like, 
what? You know, like my mind goes blank in that time. But if someone, you know, gives me a specific thing to grab onto, I can grab onto it. All right, this time tomorrow, what will I be doing? What will be a challenge I'll be facing? Um, Aaron, could you come help these two in the front row? Thank you. They're fighting over one chair. Okay, so we went through, we went through the, uh, this time, <laughs> my children, um, we went through these, uh, this time of asking these requests, and we got really specific things. One person was, uh, was going to be dealing with a machine that they worked with in this warehouse that always gave them problems. Another one was going to be having a difficult conversation with the owner of their company, uh, asking that they, you know, suggesting that they change the business model, you know, focus in one specific way. And so we prayed specifically for these things. We invited God into the specific situations in our lives. And the next week, when we came back together, we were able to say, hey, what happened with those things? And to a person, I mean, this was striking, to a person, they had been aware of God's help in those specific areas. It was really cool. That's what happens when we lay out specific requests before God. The relationship is secure. And so now we can say, Lord, here is my situation. David says, turn toward me. Have mercy on me. Deliver me. Rescue me. See my pain. See my suffering. Forgive my sins. Watch my enemies. Protect me. These are his prayers. I don't know what transpired in these particular situations for David. But I know that his requests even though they may have been specific, they were also cosmic in their scope. Forgive all my sins? See my pain and suffering? The needs that bubble up at the end of David's prayer are not about his daily tasks. They're about his eternal well-being. And brothers and sisters, whatever happened in David's life specifically, every one of those prayers was specifically addressed and answered in the life of and ministry of Jesus. Every single one. Turn toward me, see my pain. John says he took up residence with us. Isaiah says Jesus lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. Rescue me, forgive my sin. Well, the heart of wisdom, the guidance we need to navigate through our sin is is resolving to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's our wisdom. Nothing else can move me from self-justification to true penitence faster than focusing on the cross. Nothing else. Though I would have been among the mocking crowds, Jesus suffers and dies for me anyway. He swallows all of death so that I don't have to taste the poison. That's our hope. That's our theological shelter when we're facing our sin. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread, or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a merciful God, 
Thank you that you are faithful to your people, even when we don't deserve it. You are faithful. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, we come, Lord, not arguing our own case, but receiving your mercy, that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you. Hallelujah. We receive your gift with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.